I can't imagine the feeling of having a place that for your entire life, for your entire existence, in fact, for generations for your family, having a place that was your home, having a place that you belonged, that you identified with, that in fact your identity was wrapped up inside, and then having someone from the outside come in and forcibly remove you from that place and take you to live in a place that wasn't your home, in a place that you didn't feel like you belonged in a place that you may be somewhat free, but ultimately you feel like a captive. I certainly couldn't imagine how much more desperate the situation would feel if you believed that place that you lived for your whole life and for generations with your family, if you believed that that was a place given to you by God, that it was a land that was promised to you, that it belonged to you. But that's exactly the situation that the Hebrew people found themselves in towards the latter half of the Old Testament. Through a long history of of sin and turning their backs on God, God finally allowed the Babylonians to come in and to take the people out of the promised land and take them into captivity, into exile in Babylon. But what's amazing about God is even though the people had gotten themselves in this situation, God was still speaking through His prophets. And the prophet Jeremiah came to the people in exile in Babylon, in this foreign land, in this place of of fear and uncertainty. And he had a really strange message for them. Because the prophet Jeremiah, speaking the words of God, came to the people and said, listen, I know the plans that I have for you, even here, even in Babylon. I have plans to prosper you and to grow you and to bring you into something new. But there was a contingency on that verse. Because God told the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, that were in captivity in this foreign land now, He said, here's how you're going to find this prosperity. Here's how you're going to find this increase. You're going to build houses. You're going to plant vineyards. You're going to have kids. You're going to do all the things that you did in the promised land. You're going to do that here in Babylon. And you are going to live for the welfare of the city. Because in the city's welfare, you'll find your own. Now, we might have expected God to say something completely different. It would have made, at least to my mind, far more sense for God to say, look at the mess that you got yourselves into. Consider yourselves right now in timeout. You wanted this, you wanted all the foreign gods, you wanted the lifestyle of the foreigners around you, now you've got it. So you sit here in this, and you think about what you've done, and then eventually I'm going to come and get you out. You hold tight here, and then one day I'm going to come and bring you out. But instead, God says, listen, you need to immerse yourself where you are. You need to establish a life here and you need to live for the welfare of the city. And out of that, I'm going to do something amazing in your lives. God is basically telling the people through the prophet Jeremiah, there is a reason you're here and it's not just because of your sin, but I am doing something bigger than you can see and bigger than you can imagine. And I am inviting you, even though you've turned your back on me. Even though you've sinned, I am inviting you to participate in what I'm doing. Your exile is not simply punishment, but right now it's a calling, and I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. And while this may seem like a surprising response from God to His people in exile, 
If we look at the big story of the Old Testament, this wouldn't catch us by surprise at all. Because all through the Old Testament, we see a picture of a God who not only creates like we saw last week, but a God who calls and equips his creation, specifically humanity, to join him in the work that he's doing in the world. And so this morning, we're going to look again, as we have over the past couple weeks, at the big story of the Old Testament. Not one passage in particular, but many small passages that make up one big story and reveals to us this theme of calling all through the Old Testament. And we're going to see what it teaches us about God, but also what it teaches us about humanity and how this part of the story points us to the future of God's hope for his people and how we are called in Christ to live out our new life and our new work from this time, now, and forevermore. And so we're going to begin this morning in the book of Genesis. And this will be our root passage, and then we'll move all through, again, the big scope of the Old Testament. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 through 30, this is the word of God. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And verse 31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, as always, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a creative God like we saw last week. But God, we also thank you that you are a God who calls your creation to be a part of the work that you're doing. And God, we thank you that you see enough value in us to allow us to be a part of your work and your mission in the world. And God, we thank you that this is not a new development, but this is something that you had planned for us before the foundations of the earth. So God, help us to be in awe of your calling on our lives. And the things that seem very small and even in the things that seem very large, God, help us to recognize the beauty that we serve a God who calls us to participate in what you're doing. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're just going to look at a few different types of calling that we see God give throughout the Old Testament. In the first, we see that God calls co-laborers. God calls co-laborers to come along and to work with him in what he's doing. Last week, we looked at God as creator. We saw that nothing that exists was created outside of God, that he is the ultimate source of all things. As Paul says, that all things were created in Christ and through him and by him and for him. And without him, nothing was made. And in that, we recognize the incredible power of God. That God is strong enough that just by the power of his words, he breathed everything into existence. 
And so we recognize that God built a universe with just the power of his word. And so it seems pretty understandable that God is capable of doing whatever he wants and whatever he pleases. When we talk about the word delegation, we think about delegation as someone in power taking their responsibilities and spreading them out to other people, giving away certain tasks, usually for the purpose of helping the person in charge be able to accomplish what they're doing more efficiently. And there are a lot of reasons why we can be bad at delegation. Oftentimes, it's usually because if we feel like we're in charge of something, we think that we could probably do it better than other people, and so we kind of hoard those responsibilities to ourselves. But if you've ever been in a situation where things got a little too much, you recognize how beneficial delegation can be. To be able to take the responsibilities that we have and spread those out among other people, sometimes people who are more capable of doing parts of the whole better than we are. And so most of the time when we think about this idea of delegation, we think about it as an opportunity to help the person in charge be able to do things more easily and more efficiently. And so it should go without saying that God would never need to delegate. And if that's the case, then why would God's first commandment be a work order? Why would God's first commandment in Scripture be an act of divine delegation? Because that's exactly what's happening here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. We see God create everything, that God fills and forms the earth and puts it together exactly like it's supposed to be. And then he looks at his creation, especially the climax of his creation in humanity, and he begins to give humanity a responsibility. He says, all this stuff that I've created, all the birds in the air, all of the fish in the sea, all the animals that crawl across the land, every single plant that grows up out of the ground, I am giving this all to you. This is now your responsibility. And it's your job to subdue the earth. It's your job to help everything grow. It's your job to take dominion over this. And with that, God delegates. But why would God do this? Because not to spoil next week's sermon, but the theme that we're going to look at next week is failure. And we're going to look at the theme of failure in the Old Testament because there is a lot of failure in the Old Testament. And it starts at Genesis chapter 3 when we see the people who were supposed to be in charge of everything fail dramatically at what they were supposed to do. And so God takes this nice shiny new earth and he puts it in the hands of people who are clearly not equipped to handle it. And imagine how much better, at least in our minds, things would have been and could have been if God says, listen, you guys just look pretty here in the garden and and eat the stuff I'm giving you and I'm going to keep everything running. I'm going to do everything the way that needs to be done. And you guys just enjoy the bounty of everything that's taking place. But that's not what happened. God offered to humanity, in fact, commanded humanity to be in charge of the creation that he made. And so why? In this passage of Scripture, we find a God who not only creates, but a God who gives purpose, a God who gives meaning, and a God who gives agency to his creation. God didn't create us just to look pretty and be reflectors. God created us with a purpose and with an intention and to have meaning. 
John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar, points out that in the ancient Near Eastern world, and especially in creation stories like this, the emphasis isn't really on the material origins of stuff. They talk about where stuff came from, but what they're really concerned with is why stuff exists. What's the purpose? What's the meaning? And in fact, in the ancient Near Eastern world, it wasn't existence. It wasn't concrete existence that gave something value, but it was the purpose that something had. And so this music stand, it, it exists, it's here, but it's not until it's used for a musician to put the music on it and be able to have a purpose and a form till it matters in the ancient Near Eastern mindset. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, that it's not just about God creating the heavens and the earth, that it's not just about God creating the birds and the fish and the animals, it's not even just about God creating humanity, it's about God creating with purpose. And that he has a reason for why he creates, especially for why he creates us. God didn't need to delegate, not for his own good anyway. But God decided to delegate responsibility to humanity so that we have purpose and so that we have meaning. And what's amazing is this passage here is not even the first time that it happens. Meredith Klein, who is an Old Testament scholar, points out that in Genesis chapter 1, we see God do something really interesting in the pattern of creation. That on days 1 through 3, we see God forming creation. And so he takes the light and the dark and he separates them and he puts them in their place. And then he takes the sky and the sea and puts all of it where it's supposed to go. And then he draws land out of the sea and he forms everything exactly like it's supposed to be. And then in days 4 through 6, he fills it up. And he gives it purpose and he gives it meaning by putting the sun and the stars in the sky and he gives them purpose to mark out the days and the weeks and the seasons. He fills the sky with birds and so it's the sky's responsibility to hold the birds in their place and we see the sea filled with all the living creatures inside the sea and so now the sea has purpose because it gives life to all the creatures that dwell within it and the same thing for the earth and then when he gets to humanity, he does the exact same thing. In Genesis chapter 2, we see him form Adam out of the dust and breathe life and then immediately tells him, now it's your job to tend the garden. Now you have responsibility and agency. Now you have purpose. From the very beginning, we see a God who not only creates but delegates lovingly by calling his creation to participate in his mission. And of course, it doesn't stop there. A few chapters later, we see God decide that he's going to hit reset because things have gotten so bad on the earth. And so he calls this man named Noah and he says, hey, buddy, things are about to get weird. Uh, I'm going to wipe everything out and we're going to start over except for you and a small little group of everybody else. And so I am putting you in charge of not only building a boat to keep everybody safe, but you are going to be in charge of ushering in the reset. And God certainly could have just wiped the slate clean and started over because we see in Genesis 1, God can do that. He has the power and he doesn't grow weary. He is strong enough that if he wanted to wipe everything out and recreate it, he could. And yet he chose to use human agency to bring about new creation. We see God come to a man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham, I want to build for myself a people. And of course, God could have done that all by himself, but he comes to Abraham and he says, my people, they're going to be your people. 
And your descendants are going to be as vast as the number of the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. And they're going to be a blessing to the entire world. I'm doing something important, but I want to do it through you and your family. He calls a man named Moses. He says, my people are in slavery and I'm going to have you come and take them out. But not only are you going to take them out, I'm going to give them a law. I want to make them understand that they belong to me and that they're my people. And so I'm going to use you and through you, I'm going to give my people the law. To his brother Aaron, he says, I'm going to construct a religion for my people. I'm going to teach my people how to worship me and how to approach me. And so Aaron, what I want you to do, I want you to be a priest. And your people are going to be priests and your descendants are going to carry on this legacy of bringing the people into a place of worship. He comes to David, who is just a shepherd boy. He says, David, I'm building a kingdom and I want you to be in charge. But not only this earthly kingdom, he comes to David and he says, David, listen, I have a much bigger kingdom in mind. And one day, one of your descendants is going to come and he's going to undo all of the brokenness and all the garbage. And he's going to make all other kingdoms look like nothing. But I want to do it through your family. And time after time, we see God calling his people to come along and do work that is far beyond their pay grade. We see a God who doesn't simply find the most skilled people. Because again, God doesn't need to delegate. God isn't looking for someone who's going to add something to what he has. God approaches these people all throughout scripture and he says, listen, I know you're not good enough, but that's part of the beauty. I want you to come and participate in what I'm doing and I'm going to give you everything you need to be a part of that. He gifts and he equips those that are called. In Exodus chapter 35, we see a beautiful picture of that. As Moses is putting everything together, it says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for every skilled craft. And he keeps going. He talks about people with very long names that I don't feel like trying to read this morning, but he says he's given us all of these people and he has equipped them to do this amazing work. And they can, they can carve stone and they can lay gold and they can do all these beautiful things, not out of natural talent or ability because God has equipped them to do that. And time and time again, we see that happening over and over and over again in the life of the people of God. He comes to people and he says, listen, I am giving you a gift to be able to participate in what I'm doing. And you may not feel equipped and you're probably not gifted, but I am going to come in and work through you and for you. And I'm going to help you accomplish something that you could never accomplish on your own. You're going to be my co-workers. You're going to be my co-laborers. And as we continue looking through the big story, we find that this call to work, this call to labor is not temporary. Oftentimes when we think about work, we think about it, if you've been in church for very long, as a result of the fall. 
It's a result of Genesis chapter 3, right? The reason I have to go to work, the reason I have to do all this stuff is because Adam and Eve sinned, and that's where work came from. But the reality is that's just not true. Work was a part of our existence before Genesis chapter 3. It's something that was created to be good. What happened in Genesis chapter 3 was not the introduction of work, but the introduction of pain into our labor. That no longer would work be something that brings joy and fulfillment, but oftentimes work would be something that would be hard, and it would be done by the sweat of our brow and the breaking of our backs. But in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 21 and 22, we see how this fits into God's big plan. In fact, I want to read to verse 23. The prophet Isaiah, as he's talking about what he calls the new heaven and the new earth, what happens when now looking from a New Testament perspective, when Jesus comes back to make everything right and everything new, this is what Isaiah says will happen. And this sounds very familiar to Jeremiah 29. It says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit They shall not plant and another eat, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And this is where things change. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord, and their descendants will be with them. Also, Isaiah mentions that one day when Christ comes and makes all things new, we'll take our swords and the weapons of destruction and we'll be beaten into plowshares, tools for work. But again, this work that we're called to do that will be a part of our life for all of eternity is not hard, but it's the kind of work that will bring us purpose and meaning and value because we have a God who not only creates, but a God who loves us enough to make us matter. God's plan was not simply to create, but to breathe purpose into that creation and to give humanity meaning by calling us, all of us, to labor with him for his glory and for our good. And so we see God call co-laborers. We also see, and I think this is a word that I've invented, but it's okay. I've got the microphone. We'll call it a word. God calls co-feelers co-feelers to come alongside of him. And I don't want to speak for you, but I can speak for myself because I know this is true for me. It's very easy for me to turn God, even though I know the Bible talks about the love of God and all these kind of things, it's very easy for me, at least in my mind, to turn God into a very impersonal force. Oftentimes it can be easy not to see God as the father that Jesus tells us in the story in the parable of the prodigal son, the father who runs and, and kisses his children on the face when they come home. It's much easier to see God as some sort of stoic divine grandfather who sits off in the distance somewhere and he, he loves us, but it's a very impersonal love. But in God's big story, we see a very different God. We see a God who reveals himself to be a living, vibrant God who is full of emotions and not some cold, distant creator. In fact, if you were here when we were going through the book of Jonah, you might remember Jonah's main anger with God is that God was too emotional of a God. When Jonah was angry with God at the the end of the book, he says, listen, this is why I didn't come to Nineveh, because I knew that you are a compassionate God. 
I knew that you're a loving God who is full of steadfast love and slow to anger. I knew that you were a God who feels, and if these people started to repent, then of course you were going to turn your back on the the destruction that you were going to bring, and you were going to give grace and mercy because he knew that God was an emotional God. We see God make that declaration in the book of Jonah. When he responds to Jonah, he says, why are you so angry? There are, there are hundreds of thousands of people in this city. And you were so, because Jonah had this meltdown over this plant that died, and God says, you were so sad about that plant, and you expect me to be cold-hearted towards hundreds of thousands of people who don't know their right hand from their left. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that when these people call out to mercy, my heart is not going to be hardened and cold because God is a God of love and kindness and compassion. But we also see all through the the Old Testament that God is a God of anger. Multiple times when, when the sin of the people came up to God and he grew angry with them. Even the exile itself was an act of God's anger where he said, listen, if you want to be like these other people so much, then you get to go live with them now. We see God over and over again in the life of Israel becoming angry with them because of their sin and bringing down his wrath. We see a God who shows remorse. Several times in the Old Testament, we see the writers declare that God was sorry that he made us. That God had remorse for creating the people that he created. We see a God who is brought to sorrow by his people's actions and by the suffering of his people. We see a God who showed great joy when his people worshipped him, when his people were living the way that they were called to live, we see all through God's big story the wide gambit of God's emotions. And he's called his people to be the same. We've already seen that God created humanity in his own image. And that can be a really hard concept to understand, but when God created humanity in his image, he instilled certain things inside of us. He instilled the ability to love. He instilled the ability to have joy, even the ability to have anger and remorse. He gave us the ability to have compassion and kindness. All of these emotions God has woven inside of our lives. We see all through Scripture God's people feeling. I preached a we- or I officiated, I guess, a wedding yesterday. And one of the passages that always comes up in a wedding ceremony is Genesis chapter 2. In verse 22, it says, And the rib that the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And if you read that passage in a, in a Bible, you might notice that it's offset a little bit from the rest of the text. And this shows us that what Adam is doing here isn't just making some nice eloquent speech. Adam is, is singing a song. Adam is reciting a poem. And so he sees his wife for the first time and he's so overcome with emotion and he's so overcome with joy that all he can do is write a poem. Which would probably not be the best way for me to greet my wife because she doesn't really like poetry and she thinks it's weird when I write it. But for Adam and Eve, this really seemed to work. And so Adam sees her. He's like, man, I just need, I need to say something creative right now because I just love her so much. 
We see this in the story of Ruth and Boaz. We see not only the love of a man for his wife, but we see the compassion of God poured out for another person. We see this kind of emotion in the friendship of David and Jonathan. This deep, undying, intimate friendship that's born out of the love of God. We see David show compassion to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, as Mephibosheth is broken and hurting, and he brings him to his table to eat with kings. We also see all through the Old Testament anger and sorrow. We'll keep talking about David because he shows a lot of a really emotional guy. And there's a time when Nathan comes to King David and basically says, there's somebody here that's doing something wrong. He says, there's a guy who has, has committed adultery with a woman and he's had that woman's husband killed. And David says, who is this guy? And David's burning with righteous anger. He says, you bring this guy to me and I'll take care of him. And then Nathan says, mm, this is awkward, <laughs> but it's you. And David goes from this moment of, of righteous indignation and anger to a moment of brokenness and sorrow. In the book of Lamentations, we see that people who are, are hurting and in need and they cry out to God out of their sadness and out of their sorrow. And maybe nowhere in all of the Old Testament do we see the emotion of God's people more than we do in the Psalms. In the book of Psalms, we see people at their lowest. We see the psalmist crying out things like, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same thing that Jesus would utter on the cross as he's preparing to breathe his last. We see fear in the book of Psalms as the, the psalmist would write about the enemies that surround them everywhere and the fear that they have. But we also see joy. We see hope. We see beauty as the psalmist would declare the goodness and the kindness of God. And so page after page after page in the Old Testament, we see not only a God who is emotional, but we see a God who has wired us to feel, to reflect his nature through our emotions. And he's calling us to be participants in that to make our feelings known and to participate in the good things that he's given us, that he's put inside of us. Now, of course, I don't think I have to explain to you that we're probably all in need of emotional restoration. Because again, Genesis chapter 3 enters and through that failure, our emotions don't go away, but they get a little twisted. And so we start to turn anger into hate and love into lust and compassion into selfishness. But we know that one day that Jesus will come back. And Revelation 21 says that when Jesus comes back, he not only fixes the brokenness around us, but he fixes the brokenness within us. And he says all the sorrow that sin has caused, all the brokenness that sin has caused, he's going to wipe away those tears. And he's going to restore us not only spiritually, he's going to restore us not only physically, but there's an emotional restoration that will come because God has wired these things into us as a part of who we are for a reason and for a purpose. And so just as he's called us to be co-laborers from now forevermore, he's also called us to be co-feelers from now into forevermore. And then finally, God has called us to be co-speakers. God calls co-speakers speakers. We have a God who is a speaking God. And especially in the Old Testament, we see him speak in a variety of ways. A lot of times, very strange ways. At one point, God speaks through a donkey, and that's weird. At one point, God speaks through a burning bush, and that's pretty strange. 
but perhaps, definitely, the strangest way that God chooses to speak is through people. It makes far more sense to me that God would speak through a neutral donkey than through us. Because God chooses the most imperfect. We're the, we're the people that brought a curse on the whole world. We're the ones that brought sin into God's good world. And so why in the world would he choose to speak through humanity? And we see that confusion in the life of Moses. Because when God calls Moses to go, again, it's a really weird circumstance. Moses walks up and he finds a bush that's on fire. That's weird, but he doesn't say anything about it. Then that bush that's on fire is burning and it doesn't burn up. And that's weird, but Moses doesn't say anything about it. And then that bush that's burning and not being consumed starts to speak. And Moses doesn't say anything, even though that's really weird. And then the bush tells him to take off his shoes, which for me is really weird because that makes me deeply uncomfortable to take off my shoes. And so he tells him to do all this thing, all this stuff, and Moses just goes with it. Like, there's a burning bush. God is speaking from it. This seems perfectly normal. And then out of the bush, God says, I want you to go and speak to the Pharaoh and set my people free. And then Moses says, ah, that's kind of weird. This doesn't make any sense. Like, I can deal with the bush and the burning and you speaking to me from it, but God, you must be making some kind of a mistake to send me because I'm not so good at talking very good. And so this isn't a really good idea. Isaiah, at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, confesses his biggest problem. And the biggest problem of the people of Israel He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. Isaiah says, our worst problem is that we have mouths that are full of dirt and garbage, and how could God possibly use us? But in that bush, God looks at Moses and he says, no, you are going to go. And you're going to speak the truth to my people that they are no longer slaves, but they are being set free by the God who loves them. And then you are going to take them onward to the promised land. And he takes Moses, who is a murderer and a coward and someone who has no abilities or gifts on his own, and he sends him to stand before the most powerful man in the world. And he says, you are going to let God's people go. And through the work of Moses, God brings his people out of captivity. When God looks at Isaiah... He says, I need somebody to speak for me. And Isaiah says, I'll do it, but I I don't have what it takes. And so we see God reach to the altar and take a coal and touch Isaiah's lips and make him clean. And Isaiah is able to go and to stand before the people of God and proclare good news to the nation. And over and over again through the Old Testament, we see God use ordinary people to speak words of life to all the people gathered around. We see Joshua speak words of hope to a people who were weary and tired of wondering. And through the words of Joshua, God leads the people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. We see people like Elijah and Nathan and Daniel standing in the presence of kings, risking their lives to go before powerful men and not only speak truth to power, but to speak truth from power, speaking the words of God, reminding these kings that they are subject to the king of kings. We see Jonah, the rebellious, reluctant prophet, 
going into Nineveh to proclaim judgment, but through his words, God brought salvation. We see men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah and Malachi promise a people who were broken by exile and foreign rule and sin that there is hope coming and that one day God will have the last word because God has a plan and his purpose. When we read the Old Testament, we are reminded that God not only speaks to his people, but through his people. And that he speaks in a way that his people can almost unnoticeably relate to. Because God takes ordinary means and speaks through them. But we also see that God listens when his people speak. That he not only calls us to be listeners, but to be co-speakers and to come to God and to speak freely. And of course, in the New Testament, we see that through Christ, we're able to come boldly before the throne of grace and speak freely with our God. Because God has instilled this image inside of us that reflects who he is. Because God is a God who works, he calls us to be a people who work. Because God is a God who feels and emotes, He calls us to be people who feel and emote. And because God is a God who speaks, He calls us to be a people who speak. And even more amazingly than all that, a people who speak to Him and that He hears us when we call out. And so we should look at this big story in the Old Testament and recognize how amazing it is that we serve a God who not only created us, but had a purpose and a design and a plan for each and every one of us, and that he calls us to be a part of the work that he's doing, and that he equips us to be a part of the work that he's doing. And as we participate in God's big mission, we're reminded not only of his grace and mercy, but of the hope that we have that one day we'll see the big picture of all that God is doing. But until then, as we look through God's story, We need to find the affirmation that we have meaning, that we have purpose, and that we have value because God has given that to us intrinsically through his creation. That we have agency, that we matter, and that we have a purpose. And that we have work to do, being co-laborers, co-feelers, and co-speakers with God. Working to see his kingdom come and his kingdom grow. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. And speaking the good news of the gospel everywhere we go. We have a calling. And it's our responsibility to answer.